Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in to the next episode of our What's Trending in SEC Comments series, a show all about, surprise, major themes we're seeing in SEC comment letters. Each episode, a PwC National Office partner joins me to walk us through key comments so preparers have a deeper understanding as I head into year end and the annual financial statement process. And as I always like to remind private companies, although these are comments from the SEC, so perhaps not directly applicable, it's definitely food for thought as you prepare your own financial statements. Up next, non-GAAP. The use of non-GAAP metrics has increased significantly. The data shows it. The number of companies in the S&P 500 using non-GAAP is, is way up over the past 20 years. Why? Those measures allow a company to tell its story. That's my guest, Kyle Moffat, a PwC National Office partner. In this episode, we're hitting on the major themes coming out of SEC comments related to non-GAAP disclosures. This is an area that consistently lands high on the list of frequent SEC comments, so you want to pull up your chair and listen closely as we cover some of the unique considerations associated with non-GAAP. All that coming right up, so stick around. Kyle, welcome back to the podcast and uh, looking forward to our conversation today about a topic I feel like we've talked about at least once or twice before, and that would be non-GAAP measures. But specifically today, we're going to focus in on comment letter trends. And you know, one of the things that has continued to stand out to me is non-GAAP has been one of the top comment letter trends for several years. So I can guess, but why don't you share your insights into why that's the case? You know, I think there's many reasons why, um, and I'll focus on on a couple that come to mind. You know, first of all, the rules aren't the easiest to navigate. Um, unlike most of the disclosure requirements, the non-GAAP rules and guidance have specific requirements as well as prohibitions, uh, which makes the application more challenging. Uh, non-GAAP measures also evolve from period to period for, for various reasons. Uh, you have acquisition-related items, restructurings, other business developments, and second, uh, you know, the use of non-GAAP metrics has increased significantly. The data shows it. The number of companies in the S&P 500 using non-GAAP is, is way up over the past 20 years. Why? Um, you know, those measures allow a company to tell its story, uh, provides investors with that information that they that management believes will lead to a better understanding of the company uh, and specifically to, to really understand its core operating performance. Um, users, uh, such as analysts uh, of financial statements, they, they also look at non-GAAP measures to assess performance or liquidity, and it really aids them in their company-to-company comparisons. Um, you know, obviously, with the increase in usage of these measures, it's not just the number of companies using the measure, but also the number of measures each company actually presents. So it's no wonder that it is a top comment trend. So Kyle, one of the reasons I always enjoy talking to you is that because you were a regulator and you know you have past experience drafting these comments, from your perspective, when you were kind of I'll call it holding the pen, what were some of the things that you were looking for when you were reviewing the filings? Great question. Um, you know, I can tell you that that I always was skeptical of non-GAAP measures that presented a, a far more favorable picture of performance or liquidity over the comparable gap measures. 
you know, if I saw a measure that turned a gap net loss into a non-gap net income, that would have piqued my interest. Um, even the size of the adjustment may lead the staff to, to issue a comment. Um, even if it was immaterial in prior years, they may have ignored it in the prior periods, but then decide, okay, it's more material now. I'm going to focus on it and issue comments. But I guess in that case, if I'm a company, I would say, well, look, I've always thought this was an important thing to adjust for. And so I have been consistent in my treatment. That's a good point because what we're seeing from the staff is them revisiting uh, and companies are saying in response, when they get a second comment two years later, companies are saying, hey, you accepted this in the past. Mm -hmm. And the staff has come back and said, we don't care. Um, It's more significant today. And we believe that you need to fix it or clarify it or be more transparent um, or even remove it. Uh, and not make that adjustment. All right. So clearly then consistency is not necessarily a defense if you're not otherwise in compliance with all of these different requirements. I think that's a really key point because I do think sometimes companies think, well, if if I've always done it this way, then you know, I should be able to continue. Right. So, all right. And then Kyle, I think what's another thing that's always of interest is just, are there some measures that we see much more frequently? Well, as you know, um, you know, not get measures vary by industry. Um, even some industries such as REITs have broadly accepted non gap measures such as funds from operations, um, FFO. Um, and, and that's also well-defined. Um, so industry trade groups um, will uh, define those measures, um, and then most of the companies in that industry will actually apply uh, the same approach. Um, some of the more common measures include, uh, you know, adjusted revenues, adjusted earnings, adjusted EPS, um, you know, even EBIT or EBITDA, free cash flow. And then a lot of times you'll see, you know, adjusted income that excludes certain items such as stock compensation expense, restructuring costs, or even acquisition costs. Um, you know, and thinking about some of the pitfalls here, really, you know, companies need to really be paying attention to the guidance and the rules uh, that apply to the facts and circumstances of the company. So, you know, as, as companies are thinking about uh, including it in the 10K filing, they really need to think about compliance with the specific rules that apply, um, such as in the 10K, item 10E of regulation SK. Okay, so then... What in terms of pitfalls, what are some of the types of things that you specifically see? So I'd say that it's just companies that present measures that make further adjustments from what is typically expected for a measure. So, you know, if you make further adjustments to add back restructuring costs to EBITDA, you need to label that as adjusted EBITDA. And the same applies to free cash flows. It, it, and it's, it's, it sounds simple, but, you know, if you adjust further from cash flows from operating activities, less capital expenditures, the staff's going to issue a comment. Um, if you're adjusting to exclude what you believe are non-recurring items, make sure they are truly non-recurring items. And if they aren't, don't label them as non-recurring. It's funny. I was just did some training of PwC training on valuation allowances for tax and also talking about non-recurring items. So so I think the same thing that, you know, if you're restructuring every year or every few years, definitely that it does not seem like something that's non-recurring, even maybe in one case you're restructuring a different part of the business or otherwise, I think it's the same here. What I think we may see from the staff in this administration is more of a focus on items such as restructuring where they are recurring over a period, you know, each period in the past, the staff has not really objected to that. Um, 
But I expect that they're going to start focusing more on those types of recurring costs from period to period and, and may potentially object. All right. And then you made a point here about some of these more common measures, adjusted revenue, EBIT, EBITDA. So then are you suggesting if you're using those measures and then not further adjusting them, are those a relatively safe sort of, I'll say, in the fairway, or do you still need to be careful? I'd say for now, until we hear otherwise from the staff, I think it's safe. Um, but again, you, you just you, you just don't know. I think it's important to pay attention to not just the comments that are coming out of the SEC, but their commentary on the topic. And even if they have guidance, they may update their guidance in these uh, compliance and disclosure interpretations. So, um, you know, I'm kind of anticipating some sort, you know, some additional focus on the topic. So, but I'd say yes, you know, you're probably pretty safe if you're presenting and sticking to the actual definition. If it's EBITDA, you're not further adjusting for anything else. You'll probably be fine. All right. Well, I think then on that note, it's probably helpful before we get deeper into the types of comments that we're seeing, it's maybe just to refresh on when we say a non-GAAP measure, what exactly do we mean by that? Sure. So a, a non-GAAP financial measure uh, essentially depicts measures of performance or liquidity that are alternatives to GAAP. Uh, they're based upon the information that's contained in the GAAP financial statements. Um, so in short, a measure becomes a non-GAAP measure and is subject to the SEC's non-GAAP rules and interpretive guidance when it excludes amounts that are included in or includes amounts that are excluded from the most directly comparable GAAP measure. Okay. So then, as you said, though, although that seems simple, there's lots of rules and guidance. And in this, it's extremely important to pay attention to those. So what are some of the key things out there that registrants should be focused on when they're presenting non-GAAP measures? So initial rules were, were issued back in 2003, really in response to the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, and they really haven't changed much since then. Um, Regulation G applies to any public disclosures, even if not in the registrant's SEC filing. Uh, for example, Regulation G would apply to investor presentations, um, and so those measures can't be misleading. They must present the most directly comparable gap metric. They must provide a reconciliation. Item 10E of SK is going to apply to all SEC filings, such as 10Ks, 10Qs. Uh, it's going to apply to registration statements. And so in addition to the disclosures I mentioned on uh, that are under Regulation G, the requirements are that GAAP must be disclosed more prominently than the non-GAAP. Um, and that's always an issue. And the staff even mentioned prominence uh, this week uh, during the AICPA conference as, as an area they're focused on. Um, you also need to provide disclosure of why a registrant believes that metric is useful to investors. And then to the extent material, provide disclosure of any additional purposes for which it uses, the registrant uses the non-GAAP measure. Now, there's also several prohibitions. We talked about that at the beginning. Um, if it's in a 10K or a 10Q, you cannot exclude charges or liabilities that require cash settlement. You cannot exclude items identified as non-recurring if it happened at least once in the last two years or expect it to occur again. So back to, to your question, we talked about valuation allowances and thinking about something that occurs from period to period. That's why I think the staff may uh, start to focus on some of these uh, expenses or items that companies are, are labeling as non-recurring when in fact they are recurring. And then I guess the final piece is with, with respect to earnings releases, um, a little more flexibility there. Um, item 202 of Form 8K has specific requirements that, that are essentially a mix of both Reg G and Item 10E. 
So in short, companies need to comply with the requirements of both Reg E and 10E in an earnings release, but the prohibitions that are under item 10E that I mentioned are not relevant. And then on top of that, there's even more. Uh, there's the, the non-GAAP CDIs that were issued in 2016. And that's something companies really need to take a step back when they're thinking about presenting a measure. Um, you know, look at the non-GAAP CDIs, revisit those every time you're thinking about a new adjustment or a new measure you're gonna present. Um, and I'd say the key takeaway for all of the rules um, is that the non-GAAP measure can never be misleading uh, no matter where it's presented. And if the staff has that view, they will likely object to your measure or certain adjustments that you're making. Often when I have a podcast, I'll say to the speaker, you know, it seems so easy when you explain it, but so hard in practice. I think even when you describe this, this seems difficult to keep track of all of this. Um, I will say that we do have a publication to GAP or to non-GAP, and I recommend uh, that People can take a look at that. It's a great place. It has some summaries of these, some of these rules. But Kyle, I do have a question. Last week I had Ryan on at talking about MDNA and I was joking with him that he always has something in the podcast that he recommends people read. It's short, it's short. Just read it yourself. So are there any of these actual documents that you would recommend that people refresh themselves on before they enter into this uh, reporting season? I think it's taking a step back and looking at your disclosures, looking at where they are, putting in them in, in the specific buckets. I do think that the, the the what the thought leadership piece you mentioned is a great piece. It has a great table in there, uh, relatively easy to follow and understand how the rules apply and what specific requirements are. And they're all laid out there. Um, I'd say that the CDIs, um, I think companies should take a look at the end of the year um, and, and, and figure out, hey, are we complying with all of these CDIs? Um, but I also think based on what we heard at the AICPA conference, thinking about prominence, you know, some of the topics that mislabeling of, of met measures and met metrics, keeping an eye on, on kind of what the staff is saying as well, uh, I think is the, is the right starting point. All right, that's helpful. So then on the CDIs, I know that's a place where there's often a lot of judgment and people can kind of look at things different ways. So what are some of the more challenging areas when you think about the CDIs? Well, like you said, a lot of judgments involved. I, I think that's the biggest piece of it. Uh, the staff has a view um, and typically they don't uh, move off of that view. But that's what we've been seeing this year so far as well. Um, you know, the CDIs are anchored to Reg G and item 10E of SK. Um, and there are some interpretations of staff positions that staff really wanted to convey to the public in these CDIs. Um, you know, keep in mind that the CDIs are not a rule, um, so they don't have the same hook as an actual rule. But with that said, the staff does lean pretty heavily on some of the general concepts of Reg G. Um, within the CDIs, the staff's provided a, a number of interpretations and examples of some items it considers to be problematic in the non-GAAP space. For example, you know, one CDI highlights that certain adjustments may violate Rule 100B of Reg G because they cause the presentation of the non-GAAP measure to be misleading. Now, the example given in that CDI is a company presenting a performance measure that excludes normal recurring cash operating expenses necessary to operate a registrant's business, and that could be considered misleading. However, they, this is not the only example that we've really seen the staff objecting to a measure or adjustment that they consider to be misleading. 
You know, another uh, prevalent CDI mentioned in the comment letters is a CDI dealing with individually tailored accounting principles, which some refer to as ITAPs. Um, some other common staff CDI comments include, you know, reminding registrants that certain adjustments like normal cash expenses that are recurring in nature, which are necessary to really understanding you know, the, the operations of the business, they may not be appropriate. Um, inconsistent presentations between periods can be misleading. Uh, companies that exclude charges but include similar gains. In my earlier point, we've talked about this in the past, cherry picking, um, trying to focus on you know, improving your results. All right. So Kyle, as I reflect on all of that with what you just said, you, you know, the thing that really stood out to me there is you made a point that these are views, but right now at least staff really isn't moving off of these published views. And so if a company's reading something and thinking, well, I see this, but I'm special. This doesn't really apply to me. Probably aren't so special and you need to be following these rules. That's a great point. And I think one of the things we've seen in some of the staff's objections to measures has been companies trying to say or articulate that it's special, right? That, hey, this is, this is, you know, you know, one time or, or this, right. this only happens, you know, once a year, or, or maybe it happened last year, twice, two times we had this significant expense. And, and then this year we had it once. So we, we think we need to adjust for it. The staff is, is definitely, um, you know, focusing on those types of adjustments and, and they are objecting. All right. That's helpful. Then the other thing that jumped out at me, and I think this is something we've talked about before, these ITAPs, Individually Tailored Accounting Principle. I love some of our acronyms we make up. But can you share a little about what we mean by that and then what the rules are around that? No, I, you know, I, I definitely suggest that, that people read the CDI, specifically this one. Uh, All right. See, I knew there was going to be a recommendation to read yes, something. Yes, so. yes. And, and, and the example that the staff uses is, you know, essentially if you present a non-GAAP performance measure that is adjusting to change the timing of revenue recognition, the staff has indicated they'll object. Why? Because it's not, it's not considered non-GAAP. They consider it to be not GAAP. So the staff believes it's substituting recognition and measurement methods for those of GAAP which to them, uh, a lot of folks view it as uh, misleading. Now, back at the, the 2018 AICPA SEC conference, and I know we're three years removed from that, but you know, Corpfin did a staff pose some interesting questions that address its thinking about uh, individually, individually tailored accounting principles, which I believe are worth repeating. So the first question they asked is, you know, or, or what companies should ask, is does the adjustment shift gap from an accrual basis of accounting to a cash or modified basis of accounting? Does the adjustment add in transactions that are also reportable in the company's financial statements? Does the adjustment reflect parts, but not all of an accounting concept? Does the adjustment render the measure inconsistent with the economics of a transaction or an agreement? All right. So I think those are good questions to ask. And if any of our listeners want to take your advice and go read that uh, specific question, we'll include a link to it in the show notes. And then that's question 100.04. Is that right, Kyle? Yes. All right. Yeah. So we'll make sure people can find that. I, I know sometimes it's not always as easy. Um, okay. So then maybe another question, just thinking about non-GAAP, what other areas of an SEC filing should companies be thinking about when, you know, as it relates to non-GAAP measures? 
I typically uh, tell companies, and I get this question a lot, and and I, I essentially put myself back in in the staff shoes, right? And and you know, think about how the staff or how I used to review filings, and they really look at the whole picture uh, when thinking about how the non-GAAP measures fit into the overall story of the company's performance or even liquidity over a period. For example, the staff's going to look at the segments. If you present a non-GAAP segment measure of profit or loss on a consolidated basis in your MD&A, such a measure in total would be considered a non-GAAP financial measure. If you simply discuss your segment measure of profit or loss by segment and not on a consolidated basis, you'll be fine. And there's a CDI that clarifies that point, but um, it's something to keep in mind. And that's what trips up a lot of of companies. Uh, If you present debt covenant ratios or calculations, uh, liquidity and capital resources may need to be supplemented with, with a discussion and calculation of that covenant. And keep in mind, if you further adjust that calculation, you're definitely going to be in non-GAAP land. And even executive compensation, companies need to be thinking about all of these types of disclosures as interrelated with different requirements. There are specific SK requirements that apply to the executive compensation disclosure. And these do not fall under the non-GAAP scope, but you still need to provide a calculation. And then what about other ratios or metrics that you may have in a filing? Are all of those subject to non-GAAP guidance? That's another good question. And, and again, another topic they, they addressed at the AICPA conference, the confusion between metrics and non-GAAP. Um, as it relates to metrics you know, or even ratios, they're calculated using GAAP measures um, and they do not require compliance. However, you do need to keep in mind that the commission did issue guidance back in 2020 regarding key performance indicators. And that guidance really you know, provides registrants with disclosure considerations for KPIs and metrics disclosed in the MDNA. And the reminders there are, you know, companies need to, to include such further material information, um, if any, as may be necessary to, in order to make the presentation of the metric uh, essentially not misleading. Um, and those disclosures should include a clear definition of the metric, how it's calculated, potentially show the calculation, a statement indicating the reasons why that metric is providing useful information to investors, a statement indicating how management uses the metric in managing or monitoring the performance of the business, and then, of course, disclosure of how that metric is calculated if it changes from one period to another. All right. And then before we move into the recent comment letter trends, which is kind of funny, considering that was the stated purpose of this whole podcast. Uh, But before we get to that, can you remind me what filings the SEC would typically be looking at when they're giving comments around non-GAAP measures? So so they're going to look at everything. They're going to look at your 10Ks, your Qs. They're going to look at your your FPI forms if you're a foreign private issuer, Um, you know, earnings releases, uh, 8Ks, even the company's website or, or investor presentations. All right. So now that we've talked about all these fundamentals and definitely a lot to think about, and I do have a few follow-up questions, but let's see if we cover them here. So I'd like to get into now then the themes of current staff comments. And some of the things you already mentioned, I was making a little list here, were prominence, making sure you have a reconciliation, appropriateness of certain adjustments, and then of course, use of my new acronym, ITAPS. Etc. But I've also heard recently there's been a lot of discussion about non-GAAP presentation of contribution margin. So for that metric or non-GAAP, I should say, for that non-GAAP presentation specifically, what should a registrant be thinking about? 
So they're going to expect to, to see more than just the calculation of contribution margin. Um, they're going to expect the, a company to reconcile any gross margin or contribution margin, you know, non-GAAP presentation to the, the comparable GAAP gross margin. In other words, if you don't present gross margin in your income statement, the staff's still going to require you and expect you to reconcile to gross margin that is fully compliant with GAAP. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means you need to make sure that that GAAP gross margin is actually fully loaded, includes all of the required uh, allocations of expenses. So this would also include an allocation of depreciation to cost of sales as necessary to comply with an existing staff accounting bulletin. And that's uh, SAB topic 11B. So that's another another topic for people to read about and read. All about. right. Two things then. And plus our uh, the the paper we wrote on to gap or non-gap. Right. So, right. and again, for our listeners, we'll make sure there's links to all of these in the show notes, so easy place to find them. And then maybe, uh, Kyle, a specific question about the current environment is obviously, even though there's lots of other things we're talking about these days, COVID is still an underlying sort of theme we can't escape from. And so are there anything specific companies should be thinking about using non-GAAP measures in this environment? Have we seen a lot of COVID-specific comments on this topic? You know, I, I wouldn't say we've seen a, a ton of comments. The staff got really was smart and got ahead of the curve. Um, they, they published in, in guidance um, at the outset of the pandemic um, kind of their expectations surrounding non-GAAP. And essentially they highlighted that you know, the non-GAAP rules apply to all adjustments, including those related to COVID. So again, it's it's you know, you're you're still subject to the same rules and requirements. And, and we have seen some comments on COVID-19 related non-GAAP metrics. I'd say most are are really focused on the appropriateness of certain adjustments companies are making. And the SEC though, I think that the most important piece is they're looking out for these metrics. Um, not just from a corporate filing review perspective, but also from an enforcement perspective. So uh, I expect that that based on this current administration and what we heard uh, yesterday from the director of enforcement, as well as the chief account of enforcement, this is going to be an area of focus for them. Um, but I, I do think the staff, in the, at least in the review program at CorpFin, they're going to question if the adjustments aren't directly attributable to COVID. And they're also going to focus on companies making hypothetical adjustments um, rather than actual amounts, so the staff's likely going to object. So, you know, don't say that that you're going to make an adjustment for lost revenues. Um, the staff's going to object to that, and, and they've indicated as much. All right, thanks, Kyle. And for our listeners, Kyle refers to yesterday where he's referring to the recently wrapped up AICPA conference to so kind of know where that information came from. Kyle, then another question for you, and you've alluded to this a few times through this podcast, is that you know with Chair Gensler. Uh, in charge of the SEC, do you expect to see any changes in the approach to how you know they're commenting on non-GAAP measures or what they're really focused on? So the first point I'd make is we are already seeing those changes. Uh, we've already seen a, a switch, a bit of a switch. Um, the chair hasn't included non-GAAP on his you know, regulatory flex agenda, which lists all the rules that they're going to work on over the next 12 months. But it doesn't mean the staff's uh, not going to focus on it. In fact, I think the tone at the top uh, that we've been hearing of cops on the beat gives the staff a bit of a green light to push on a lot of these issues, um, especially with, with non-GAAP potentially being one of them. And I also think, and I mentioned this, is I, I think we're going to see an, an uptick in enforcement actions on non-GAAP. All right. So with all of that backdrop, then, 
What do you think companies should be focused on specifically for this year end? So here I'd say clearly describe why management uses the measure and, and what that measure is designed to do. Think about its usefulness and, and even why the metric is relevant, how it's useful to an investor. Uh, ensure that you have the appropriate reconciliations included. Make sure you have clear policies, procedures, and controls around the metrics. And that's that's a kind of commentary that that we used to say when I was at the staff in a lot of our you know panels and conferences is controls are probably the most important aspect of of this space. And then, of course, consider involving the audit committee, uh, the disclosure committee. And, and when thinking about the disclosure, uh, and I just keep thinking about enforcement in the back of my mind and, and kind of what we continue to hear from them, is be as transparent and consistent as possible, uh, especially when you have changes to that measure uh, from period to period. Okay, so then Kyle, to that point of being transparent and consistent, you know, one of the reasons companies use non-GAAP measures, obviously, is to reflect their view of the business. And so if your view of your business is changing, and maybe that's because of COVID, other changing circumstances, then how do you recommend companies handle that? Because maybe they feel like they need to make changes to the way they're presenting certain non-GAAP measures. I think if you have the right policies and procedures and controls in place, you'll be able to take the step back. And I think that's really the important piece of it is making sure that you have fresh eyes on adjustments you're making. Make sure that you have clear policies about how you'll handle situations like this, especially even in the future for, for something that you know, may not be COVID and maybe something else, um, weather-related events or things like that. Um, and so I think companies need to be prepared for the, the or have the mindset that their non-GAAP is going to change. The staff understands that. The staff, of course, that's why they, they issue comments you know, on a company may not have issued on a prior period. So I'd say taking a step back, looking at the guidance and evaluating each adjustment um, you know, from that lens of, hey, what's an investor looking for here? What might the staff comment on or what might they object to? Well, let me make sure that I'm as transparent as possible about certain adjustments that I'm making. All right. And then any specific advice for companies responding if they get a comment specifically on non-GAAP uh, measures, but more broadly as well, if you, you have yeah. a few nuggets of wisdom you want to throw in? Sure. I mean, I, you know, I, I think the first thing and the staff says this, you know, every time they they talk about the comment letter process, but it's clearly and directly address each of the issues raised in each comment. A lot of the non-GAAP comments and questions really are, you know, from what I've seen, companies are, are a bit confused sometimes by, um, hey, which which direction is the staff heading on this topic? Um, so if you have any questions, you know, or if you're confused by the comment, definitely recommend reaching out to the reviewers listed in the comment letter and get clarification. Obviously, talk to, you know, your auditors. Um, I think the important piece there is, you know, involve the right people early on in the process, um, including the right people within the company um, or even the company's external advisors. Um, I always say you always have to reference the relevant rules or guidance and where you believe you fall in um, to the specific disclosure requirements or even the CDIs that you think apply to you, because this really is going to aid in resolving the comments sooner than later. I'd say that the, the final observation there is, you know, the staff's really been focused on requesting companies to include its auditors on calls and dealing with non-GAAP. Now, that's a, a very different approach than in the past, because obviously, you know, think about gatekeepers being involved with, with non-GAAP. We typically aren't. Um, and they aren't asking specific questions of the auditor, 
auditor, but they want the auditor on the call to help facilitate the process. They know that the auditors aren't the gatekeepers, but they also know that we understand the topic well. All right. That's helpful. And then this is slightly off topic, but I was wondering when you talked about it earlier is, you know, you're talking about the importance of the CDIs and, you know, being familiar with them, et cetera. From a process point of view, how do companies keep up on what's being issued in those CDIs? Are they coming out frequently, infrequently? Do they get announced? What is the process for that? They they typically do. Um, but it, it is, look, it is a challenge because if you get feeds from the SEC, from their website, you have to be very careful about what you highlight that you want, uh, you know, what information you want. I, I essentially get everything from the SEC. And so I get a lot of, you know, enforcement actions. I get a lot of, uh, you know, certain proceedings that maybe most people don't care about uh, from the enforcement division. And so I probably get a little too much, but there are, there are ways to just go to the SEC's website, click on what you want. And include in their, you know, interpretive guidance because the CDIs would essentially, you know, fall into that bucket. Um, they haven't updated them in, in a while, though. I'd say it's it's 2016. There have probably been a couple of changes here and there, um, but for the most part, they've they've kind of remained the same. Um, but again, it doesn't mean that they're not going to revisit some of the CDIs and put out additional guidance. So I'd say, you know, pay attention to that. You know, keep going back to the website, making sure that there are no updates when you're walking through your year end, figuring out, are we compliant? Are these adjustments compliant? All right. And I didn't intend this as a plug for our newsletter, but I will say that we would put updates in our newsletter. So if you're not signed up, you definitely should sign up. So we're actually up to what's normally my favorite part of the podcast, but I think my team may have gone a little bit too far into pop culture with the stump the guest question that they, they have for you. So I might simplify it a little bit uh, to just ask, you had mentioned certain SEC rules that were adopted via Reg G required a reconciliation between GAAP and non-GAAP EPS. So what year were those new regulations or was that regulation issued? Shoot. Oh, man, that is a stumper. Um, so, I mean, the initial rules were 2003. Um, and then, of course, there have been mentions of it. And of course, there's 2016 CDIs. I don't know. What, what's what's the answer to that one? That's a tough one. So the original rules were issued in 2003. So great job on that. So I'm going to go on then to the other part of the question, which I will be amazed if you know the answer to. What song by Beyonce was released the same year that hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100? Did she sing all the single ladies? I don't know, but that is definitely a good guess. I believe she did. So good guess. Fact check. So sorry, Kyle. Single ladies was not the correct answer. And honestly, I'm a little impressed you knew that was Beyonce. The answer we were looking for was crazy in love. I'll ask a follow-up. It's not that one. But any guesses on what rapper may have been collaborating with her at that time? That way, uh, Jay-Z? Yes, Kyle, you're way more up on pop culture than I expected. Fact check. Impressive work on this one, Kyle. There's no stumping you with this collaboration question. The artist featured was Jay-Z. 
I am very impressed at your your knowledge of um, of Beyonce and pop culture and the fact you knew what year Reg G was issued. So you definitely are a step ahead of most of my guests when it comes to the stuff <laughs> to guest questions. So Kyle, as always, such a pleasure to have you on. And thank you for all your guidance and for knowing your pop culture. So thanks for thank joining you. me. Thank you. That does it for today. And sadly, that's the last episode of our What's Trending at SEC Comments series. If you missed any of them, check out the list wherever you listen to your podcast. Starting in the new year, to help you close your books, we're kicking things off with a year-end toolkit. Our first episode airing January 4th will focus on key year-end reminders. This Thursday, we're wrapping up another series with the last episode in our ESG series. We're closing things out with a moment of truth episode moving beyond theory to help our listeners put into practice all that we've talked about throughout the series. So join me and my guest, Brigham McNaughton, as we talk about how to establish data quality and design repeatable processes and controls. So that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further